0: sick and tired of the financial bondage that's been holding you back? Are you ready to take charge of your finances to cut your mortgage payment in half while reducing your taxes significantly? If yes, then this podcast is for you. Fiscal fitness and freedom can pay off the national debt in less than 10 years. So from humble beginnings of just about $500, Scott built a billion-dollar mortgage company. So here's your host, scott smith
1: hi everyone welcome back to fiscal fitness and freedom my name is laura Luth. i'm here with scott smith hi scott how are you doing
2: hey laura how are you doing today
1: i'm great i have some questions for you today we want to get to know you a little bit better and i lined up some questions that will help us do that
2: okay get to know scott better huh (laughs)
1: that's right I got this question from one of our listeners and I thought it was a really good one we talked about it a little bit when we first started the podcast and it's on the website that you started a billion dollar mortgage company and so somebody was asking how did you grow a billion dollar mortgage company from just five hundred dollars and what lessons can a small business owner learn from this experience
2: Uh, okay well First of all, it didn't have a billion-dollar net worth. You know, if I didn't create a company that I could sell for a billion dollars. Otherwise, my life would be quite different today. I had a billion-dollar line of credit, and I mean that, and that was back in '93. That was that's probably worth a ten-billion-dollar line of credit today. But in when with commercial mortgages, you know, I mean, some commercial mortgages are a hundred million. It's, that's just ten of them and a billion. So the numbers seem more staggering, but when you're lending on commercial real estate, that, that's that's what it takes. Yeah, I, I technically started actually with $425 and I didn't even use all $425. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <have some> it
2: <laughs> was a crazy time in my life. I actually, when I made the decision to do that, my wife and I had, uh, we had, Bunch of kids and just one car. So I had to go out and and lease a car with nothing down. I remember saying, no, no, even, even the, uh, even the sales tax has to be financed in it. This is like zero down for this car. (laughs) I pulled that off and then I found, uh, then I drove around. It was SNL crisis then. So drove around town in my new car and found a building for rent and went in and actually sat down with the owner of the building was there. And I said, show me the smallest, most inconspicuous office you have. And he showed it to me and I said, what's your vacancy rate? About 55%. He said, it's 45 And I said, so I'd like you to rent this one to me where I don't make any payments for the first two months. Cause I've got to get this company going and I'm doing a commercial mortgage company. So someday I'll be financing your building for you. So how about it? And he agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Went down to rent the furniture, office furniture, leased it, nothing down, leased a fax machine. Even the back then you had to have a, a phone system, you know, where you patch in to different employees. You didn't just use a as lease that. And so yeah, it was it was uh your first payments were gonna come due in the next sixty days and you just scrambled. <laughs> and uh we pulled it off. We actually never missed a payroll, hired a bunch of people on commission. <laughs> you know, so they got paid when I got paid, and just put the put the word out word out that we were going to be doing lending, and scrambled to close loans as fast as we can. But we started off closing residential loans because that you could do that faster, and the concept of pooling loans. That's why I started that company. It was to do that, and I thought we'd have to ease into that traction, and and start with the residential loans. Uh, and to an extent that was true, but what, what happened is we just put the word out and I got in a couple of directories that existed back then and the phones, they were ringing off the hooks. And so we would put this deal together where the borrower would come in and we'd say, okay, look, it will cost you this amount of money upfront for us to even evaluate your property. Because remember on a commercial real estate, you know, you might be located in Boulder, Colorado, and you're going to have to fly to Boston to look at a brownstone, you know, so you've got your air flights and you've got to send a site inspector out there and you're going to have to hire an appraiser, everything. So there's, there's big upfront fees they have to pay to get that loan underwritten and that pays the overhead. So the borrowers themselves were helping to pay for the creation of the company as pay as you go. And if they were approved, then there would be a deposit. And so, you know, it it took a couple of years before we were able to put that first pool together on Wall Street. And during that period of time, the borrowers were having to wait for their closing. But back then, at that stage in our economy, a lot of borrowers were being foreclosed on by banks because, in what was happening, was called the SNL crisis, savings and loan crisis. And what had happened was the savings and loans had overloaned out there and real estate prices were starting to nosedive and there was no one to make a new loan. So the way commercial loans work, it's not like a home loan. A home loan, you get your loan and you have 30 years to pay it. Uh, with a commercial loan, commercial real estate loan, you get a loan and in five, seven, or 10 years, there's a balloon, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got to refinance that property. And so the SNL crisis, there were The defaults were particularly unfair to the borrowers because they were paying on their mortgage, but the regulators had stepped in and said, thou shalt not make any more commercial loans. Well, you tell all the commercial lenders you can't make <laughs> loans, and the loans balloon, they go into a default. And so these borrowers found that by applying for a loan in our hypothetical pool that was to come down the pike… They would stave off a foreclosure. So, in other words, the bank would say, "Oh, you've got a you've got a loan pending, you know with our with the company I set up. We'll hold off on foreclosures." And the banks didn't really want to foreclose because they were right. getting their payments, but it was just a regulatory type of a thing. And so the regulators let them not foreclose if they had applied with us. Now talk about a nice little business model. You don't get foreclosed on (laughs) if you apply with us. And so you're quite willing to wait a year or two until this whole thing can be put together because you're keeping your property. And then the remarkable part about that was then the banks began to discover that we were putting this pool together. And so they would send their borrowers to us to apply. So when you have Citibank, (laughs) and it was literally Citibank would send us all their loans that were maturing. So we put them in a pool so they wouldn't have to default on them. Security Pacific doesn't exist anymore. A number of banks would send us their loans. So very quickly, we had many hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, millions of dollars of loans. So by the time we're ready to do the deal and DLJ had committed to start funding them, they needed to write a line of credit to pay for all of these loans. And when you tallied it all up as Astounding billion dollar line of credit. So yeah, we went from $425 capital available to start a company to a line of credit of a billion dollars. And the first first company in the world to actually originate all these commercial loans to be put into a commercial mortgage backed security. Wow. It, so that it was scrambling at every point in time. I would say the most difficult part of that, though, was convincing the investment banks on Wall Street that you really could pool commercial loans and create a commercial mortgage-backed security. And they had every reason in the world why you couldn't do that. There's no government guarantees. The loans are too big to fit into a pool. One loan goes bad, and it significantly impacts the pool. How on earth do you combine a shopping center with an apartment with an interstate motel? You know, it's so different. It's <laughs> so you know. different. And, um, you know, we just had to come up with a reason for all of it. And, and as we originated the loans and they were in hold waiting to close, we had enough loans to be able to model what that pool would look like, what its performance would look like. And we went to the rating agencies and the rating agencies actually created ratings for what that pool, that mortgage-backed security would be rated if those loans were Were closed and so part of that i remember we rented a little twin engine plane and we flew a couple of analysts from standard and poor uh for three weeks all over the country looking at one (laughs) property after another you know because these were located not just in major cities so yeah it was a wild ride putting that together and you know uh, the people in the know the, the smart people all said it can't be done And in the end, it was done and it worked and it worked out quite well. Yeah. So that, (laughs) I I think I've captured the essence of how that worked. Yeah.
1: What lessons can a small business owner get from that?
2: From that? uh, You just got to scramble, you know, just keep scrambling and can't listen to, can't listen to what the experts tell you. You know, if you're trying to do something new, all people, you know, and they, they can be both critics who are detracting from you and well-meaning people who just want to really, you know, make sure you're being guided in the right direction. Yeah, I think throughout my life and all the companies I've been involved in, I don't know that the advice you get out of an MBA program or a textbook or from some seasoned person does you any good at all. And it's um, there's a lot of luck involved. You know, I think who you meet at a certain time makes this connection that comes through and it works. How 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 can you guarantee something like that will happen? You can't. It's I think tenacity, if you're passionate and stay at it, that's probably the only thing that comes close to a formula. I love that. Yeah.
1: What inspired you to write a tale of two economies? I know a lot of our conversations in this podcast is based on that. And I've always wondered what kind of drove you to to write that book.
2: That book had a, had a long history to it. That book was over 20 years in the coming. <laughs> I would say the very first draft, so that, that came out in what, 2022? No, 2023, the beginning of 2023 this year. And the first draft of that would have been written probably in 1996, 97. It, was, and it wasn't the same title or anything. It was just working on the concepts, the idea of Banking 2.0 came out of that draft. The concept of a payment tax came out, but none of the data existed that would prove that that's the right way to go. But I wrote a document that showed theoretically the best way to go is if you taxed every payment that was out there, because obviously income is a subset of that, and so the tax rate would be lower. But we had no idea if there was enough payments out there that the tax per payment would be low enough for it to work. The incentive in doing it, there were a couple of incentives in doing it. One was back to the small business, running a small business. Taxes were, they, you know, they almost destroyed you. You know, I, I, I looked at the taxes, my employees would have to pay. And I, I didn't know how they could make it, you know, I knew I couldn't pay them more and I looked at the taxes I was having to pay and it's just like, it seemed like there's a lot of hurdles to running a small business out there, and taxes are one of the tough ones. The other is capital for starting a company, and so Banking 2.0 became is a solution to that problem for businesses across the country. So the, re- the reason for the book was my own personal pain, you know, trying to navigate through life, and the pain I saw in my colleagues and friends, that was the reason— The book. And the theory I was capitalizing on was my own personal observation that there were two economies my real life at home, trying to pay a mortgage and, you know, get kids through school and all of that. And then there was the financial, the monetary economy that I worked in, in which I was dealing with huge numbers, (laughs) you know, that were, you know, you're always dealing with billions and not in your household you are and so i'm like there's two worlds out here (laughs) you know there's two entire universes and my whole experience with wall street and treasuries and derivatives and all of that convinced me that this monetary economy that i worked in was very different than this real economy that i lived in and that's why it's a tale of two economies and and I think that is the crux of most of our problems today. Economic-wise, people's standard of living is not fully recognizing the interplay between these two very different economies. That was, that's why I wrote the book.
1: That's wonderful. And so in response to the taxing of and abolishing the uh, income tax and taxing payments, what is your response to critics for arguing against this? What, How do you address those concerns?
2: I've had so surprisingly few critics about getting rid of income taxes and the ability to tax payments. Everyone presupposes there are all these people against it. You know, whenever I give a talk on it or I'm in a conversation, you know, it seems like people allude to these powers that be that will be against it, you know. Right. And so... You know, without naming names, you know, I've I've met with you know quite a few billionaires, and they're all for it. I've met with hedge fund managers; some of them were the billionaires, and they're for it. I've met with high level people at the Fed. I mean, they're they're obviously for it. I mean, I think in the big accounting firms, you know, if you you look at the big the big three, they get about a third of their revenue. Comes from handling taxes for the fortune thousand, and but I've talked to some, you know, upper management there, and they're like, "Hey, you know, we can get rid of income tax. <laughs> Our firm would figure out how to navigate that one, <laughs> you know." So it's not that there's any resistance that's holding it back. The only reason this idea is not being implemented is so few people know about it. Okay, and so I think I, matter of plus, I can only
1: see it. From my standpoint, I'm like, wow, well, that's so beneficial. Right. I mean, be I've against... always wondered, like, is there, no, but I'm like, I can always see yeah. it from like the common person. I'm like, okay, like for that's... me, it's great. So I just wonder if there's maybe that's... like that's... somewhere yeah. where it's just not like, getting trash. <laughs> but, no, it's just, so... it's
2: just, it's not known. Yeah. It's just not known. I mean, you, you go you just walk down the street and talk to hundred people and say, hey, have you read the tale of two economies? And if you get one out of hundred today, that'd be amazing, you know? but right down the road, let's hope things go viral <laughs> you know And then right so people hear what about could it. we do
1: or what can our listeners do to partner with us to demand these changes that need to be made?
2: Spread the word, spread the word. I think that's the thing. I mean, you know it used to be there was a total vacuum. Nobody was reaching out, you know I mean and today I have uh, three different, zoom calls i'm on from different parties that have called to say hey you know we've read about this or heard about this how can we help so and they're all in different organizations you know small organizations so and tomorrow i fly out to california because i've been invited by a group out there you know and so it is picking up but it's not in the mainstream news you know you, right not on the giant podcast not on cnn fox I think the Wall Street someone in the Wall Street Journal mentioned the book. Somebody read it there. So it's it's getting out there. Once it gets out there, I think there's no stopping it. Yeah. You know, that's my dream. I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> it has its <laughs> own life. <laughs> it takes off. And I mean, I would love it if my taxes went down to zero point two five percent. I
1: think we all would. That would be incredible. Yeah, right.
2: And we have a balanced budget. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a uh, check with $2,000 a month each month from basic income either. And free healthcare, <laughs> hey, I'm all for that too.
1: <laughs> well, those are all my questions for today. This was great, you. it was great getting to know you a little bit more. Thank you so much, Scott.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, Laura. See you all on the next episode, bye-bye. So that's it for
0: today's episode of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. Head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week who posts a review on iTunes. will win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value. Grand prize drawing for a private VIP mentoring session with Scott Smith himself. Be sure to head on over to FiscalFitnessandFreedom.com and pick up a copy of Scott's blueprint to discovering your own unique formula to personal success. And join us